Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the fourth episode in our new series covering our generations issue. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, senior editor at Plow. In this episode, we will be talking with Tara Isabella Burton and Tim Shriver about moral realism, and with Hannah Long and Bose Harrington about Jesus and John Wayne. Tara Isabella Burton is the author of two novels, 2018's Social Creature and 2022's The World Cannot Give, and of 2020's Strange Rights, New Religion for a Godless World. She's also the author of the upcoming Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. She's a Plow regular, friend of the pod, and a dear friend of mine. She tweets at NotoriousTIB. Tim Shriver is the longtime chair of the Special Olympics, the co-founder of the social and emotional learning movement, and recently the founder of Unite. He's also the founder of the recently launched Dignity Index, dignityindex.us. Welcome, Tara and Tim. You've written a really substantial piece, um, which we're very excited to publish. Do you guys want to talk a little bit? Um, Tim, do you want to talk about what the concept for this piece was? We've It's called Spiritual Realism, Human Purpose in Pursuit of the Common Good. And it clocks in at around 7,000 words. And it's something that we really hope our readers kind of uh, chew on a good bit. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us. I'll, I'll just start by saying I'm enormously indebted to my co-author, Tara Isabella Burton, on this. Uh, her uh, both intelligence and brilliance and scope of knowledge uh, about uh, not just philosophical, philosophical sort of the epistemological questions in play, but also the contemporary challenges to the ways in which we think fundamentally has just been an enormous learning experience for me. So thanks and super grateful that I've been able to work with Tara on this. I mean, I, I'll just say very briefly that uh, the piece is in some ways a, a, the fruit of uh, my 40 years of work and my upbringing. I was raised in a family that believed that politics was fundamentally about bringing uh, the deepest human values to life. I started my career in education where I worked in with young people who I felt were starving for purpose and meaning in life as much as they were starving for knowledge of mathematics or science or social studies. And then I spent 25 years in the Special Olympics movement, which is fundamentally about inviting a cultural shift of mind uh, around the fundamental human dignity that all of us possess. Uh, people who've been treated in enormously humiliating and marginalizing ways, people with intellectual disabilities, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, the Special Olympics movement is trying to awaken culture, individuals, groups, collectives, religions, awaken us to the uh, universal dignity uh, that unlocks the capacity to see people so differently if we just embrace it. So all of those experiences in, in my life uh, have, have reinforced for me that the way in which we think about uh, spirituality, the way in which, which we think about religious values as being separate from public discourse, as being walled off from political uh, decision-making, as being privatized outside of our collective and social action, that's all wrong. Um, and so working with Tara, we've been able to make a pretty, I think, powerful argument uh, that we're on the cusp of a fundamental rethink about the relationship between our deepest spiritual values and our social and all cultural action, and that that rethink can unlock a lot of change in our society. Tara, one of the sort of words that is associated with uh, this, this kind of thinking is post-liberalism. Um, or I, I guess like a, a, some kind of critique of liberalism. Do you want to give us just like a, a basic, what is liberalism in this context and what's the problem with it? Sure. Um, I think defining liberalism, you sort of run into the, uh, the 
cliche that there's as many definitions as there are liberals, uh, as it were. But I, I think that what we're trying, what we talk about in this piece when we're talking about liberalism is, roughly speaking, a uh, post-Enlightenment school of thought now culturally dominant uh, in, in the Western world, particularly in the English-speaking uh, world, that sees uh, among the hierarchy of goods which uh, we might pursue um, human freedom and autonomy, the ability to make our own choices as being not just a good among many, but the highest good, the good uh, towards which others should be ordered. Uh, secondarily, additionally, um, I think something we uh, that is integral to kind of the liberal mindset that we are investigating in this project is the idea that uh, religion, superstition, moral values, all of these things that are not sort of verifiable in a certain way um, are have the potential to be dangerous in the public sphere, that the public sphere should work, uh, should be pluralistic and sort of should, uh, while allowing uh, individuals to have what might be considered from the liberal uh, point of view, our own uh, biases, our own particular mindsets, but that the kind of institutions sh and should not be putting their thumb on the scale, so to speak, to, to tilt in a particular direction. Uh, and of course, this this is this uh, suspicion is completely understandable when you think of uh, the history of liberalism as a sort of school of thought that arose in part out of seeing uh, the astonishing uh, centuries worth of religious warfare in the wake of the Protestant Reformation. Um, yes, of course, religion and kind of mo deeply held moral convictions are potentially uh, dangerous. And uh, the idea that um, there's a kind of epistemic humility involved in saying, well, we're not sure exactly what is true. We are not sure exactly what is right. We are not sure exactly what is good. Um, ergo, our public space must sort of account for these differences in opinions and perspectives. All of that, I personally think, is 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 sort of very good and very solid, uh, and it, perhaps there are post liberals who disagree with that part of it. But I think more broadly, the post liberal movement uh, over the past I don't know few years, decades um, has is a sort of umbrella term for a group of thinkers, uh, generally but not exclusively on the conservative side of things, uh, who think that uh, liberalism is kind of reached its uh, run up against certain limitations, that we have lost something in uh, our divinization of human freedom and our conviction that certain kinds of moral sentiment are too dangerous to be um, deeply wedded to public discourse in a certain way. They have to be sort of shuffled to the realm of the private. Um, and that these assumptions need to be challenged. Uh, but where I think we find uh, in, in this piece a uh, common cause with this wider school, this wider umbrella, is our belief that there is something um, that is not just kind of nice to have or good or a, a fine addition about a certain kind of moral uh, and spiritual sentiments in human life, uh, and that it is already true that there are moral assumptions, spiritual assumptions, metaphysical assumptions baked into any way that we talk about politics, legislate, policy, um, that, that, that sort of insofar as neutrality is, is 
seems to exist. It's in fact simply the inculcation of a certain set of values, including, as I said earlier, about human freedom. And we want in this piece to to push back on that and say, these 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 moral questions, these metaphysical questions, these are at the heart of what makes us human. And it would be short-sighted not to see, um, to envision them as part of our political life already, let alone prescribe that they be made part of our political life. What are the factors, and you actually described them at the beginning of your piece, that make this seem like a particularly urgent question to address now? Um, this need uh, for matters of good and bad, um, the common good versus the common bad, uh, not just be shoved aside uh, to the realm of private opinion, but to actually be the center of our, our conversation as a society. Nothing is more uh, powerful evidence of that breakdown than the actual breakdown of our mental and social and cultural and emotional health. Uh, the explosion of loneliness, think about it, it should not be surprising in a culture that places the ultimate value on the individual alone. Uh, the, uh, the breakdown of trust in institutions should not be surprising if the culture fractures and dismantles collective trust in the good, the meaningful, the valuable. Uh, so the, the argument here is not primarily a philosophical one, although we draw on the most important, I think, trends in the, uh, the, the post-Enlightenment world or post-liberal world. Uh, the argument here is that there's a social and a cultural and a personal urgency to shifting the paradigm because we're dying of loneliness and fear and anxiety. And uh, it's the, the outcomes of those things, which are self-harm and hostility and anger towards others. Uh, we can't survive that way. We individuals, uh, human beings, uh, countries, cultures can't survive uh, as a collection of nomads living in a meaningless universe in a war of all against all. Uh, so the urgency is is not primarily theoretical. The urgency is quite practical. Our culture um, is in some sense falling apart because of the myth that the value that uh, uh, supersedes all other values is simply the self. And what that leads us to is a situation where it is, uh, I believe, incorrect, but I believe certainly understandable that we turn to ourselves, that we think we can rely on ourselves, that we have this uh, cultural myth that looking inward um, is the the closest way to get us to uh, something we can rely on, because I suppose the, the logic goes, at least I know I'm not lying to myself. Now, in practice, uh, there's a wealth of... of uh, wisdom and, and theological and philosophical traditions on this, we lie to ourselves a lot. Uh, we don't know what we want. We don't know ourselves very well. And yet I think this kind of cratering of, of public trust um, means that um, this isn't just a problem that can be solved by, you know, some, 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 as much as I wish it could be, by some cultural change in the air that is, that is simply about, well, like making people more communal. Um, we also need on, on the policy side, and this is something that, you know, I think it, Tim, Tim's career very much illustrates, the work he has done very much illustrates, that, that one needs to build institutions, actual 
uh, mechanisms by which people can come together, that can earn public trust, that one can kind of, that building a polity and changing a culture um, are, are intertwined projects. One of the, um, the things that I sort of like to think about just as a way to calibrate this and, and sort of to talk about with people um, explaining why this is a political project and what that what that kind of means is to think about um, just Dr. King, which I mean, obviously, he's he's a touchstone and it can feel sort of cliched to even talk about him. But um, the phenomenon of, you know, him speaking to the the American people as citizens and to legislators and calling um, calling everyone, calling all of us to match our laws to the natural law and to sort of look beyond the 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 existing positive laws um, to, you know, what he would think of as the law of God or the natural law and to encourage us to, you know, to demand that our institutions in America and our laws um, reach beyond the unjust kind of parochial self-serving laws, you know, that, that were of the, of the Jim Crow era and match those those laws and institutions to the law of God and to the natural law. That's something that's like deeply embedded in the American tradition at this point um, and deeply embedded in our vision of like what the political good looks like. Um, does that sort of ring true to either of you? And is that something that you think might offer like a little way in for people to understand what we're talking about and, and what a real American version of this rather than a kind of like nostalgic European version might look like? I think something that we would like to convey in the piece to a, a range of, of, audience, to, of audiences, not all of whom have a particular uh, religious vocabulary or, or, or tradition, is the, is the conviction that um, there is something about us being the kinds of beings we are, something about us being human, um, that that is wedded to um, things that are ontologically true, that are ontologically good, that reality is not simply what we make it, what we would like it to be, or subject to uh, human will. We can speak meaningfully, robustly about good and evil, that these are not outmoded or outdated terms, that um, the things that uh, human beings uh, hunger for, uh, in, in a kind of deep and palpable way, uh, these are not mere projections of what we, we would like to exist. They are not psychological fantasies. They point to something real. I think it is a commitment that one has to make to hold to spiritual realism. Uh, and I think it is a commitment one could conceivably not make and perhaps even make a case for not making. But I think that that would be incorrect. Tim? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I share Tara's kind of uh, caution about uh, natural law theory. I think some of that's uh, well out of date. What I don't think is out of date is Dr. King's um, integration of the truly good, the truly meaningful, uh, the truly valuable hunger of the human heart and the human spirit with the cultural and political and social commitments towards justice and peace um, and equality or equity in today's language, that's irrefutably empirically provable. We are creatures who look, who try, not just to find what's proximate, but what's true. Not just what feels good, but what's good. 
you know, not just what's me, you know, what, what adds meaning to my life, but which is truly meaningful. This is who we are. This is how we operate. This is how we think. This is why we wrote this piece because you have two people and maybe four people in conversation here. We're all looking, we're struggling. We have at our root as Bernard Lonergan wrote many, many years ago, the question of God, it is implicit in all of our questions. So what King did, uh, masterfully in my view was bring the question of god if i can use that language which is natural in the sense of natural law which is natural to all of us and bring it to the surface as a part of our politics and our cultural discourse and challenge us all of us in those days but still today frankly challenge us uh to answer the question have we created the systems and structures that are truly good that are truly loving, that are truly meaningful for the rest, for the country, or for the world for that matter. Could we just talk about this term spiritual realism a bit? Well, I think, uh, look, we, we, what we're trying to point out here is that the divide between the spiritual hunger that human beings uh, experience, the divide between that hunger that's deep within us and the culture and politics that we consider to be the provenance of the real, the practical, uh, the external, that that divide needs to change. And we can change it. We can bring spirit to the most practical problems in our lives and in our culture. We can bring the hunger for the good, the desire to serve, to sacrifice oneself, even the ultimate sacrifice of oneself for the other. We can bring all of that to our political discourse and our social discourse without uh, uh, without believing that the spiritual stuff is purely subjective or purely arbitrary. But the one thing people think, I, I believe, um, because we've been told this, I, I'm going to call it a lie, we've been told this lie, that spirit isn't real and reality doesn't in, include spirit. And the, the purpose of this piece is to challenge both of those assumptions, to say that spirit, the spiritual hunger of the human experience and the real practical life of human beings, both individually and together, actually belong in the same dialogue and the same experience. I mean, this reminds me of a conversation Suzanne and I were having with uh, a mutual friend, Mary Townsend. She's a, uh, she teaches philosophy at St. John's University. Uh, and she wrote a piece for Plow recently called The Day No One Would Say the Nazis Were Bad. And the part of it that uh, this spiritual realism reminds me is her observation that Often in the classroom uh, with college students who, you know, I, I take it she, she loves sort of helping them think along the same lines you're describing. Um, but she finds that uh, one of the blocks for, for many of them is they've learned quite early on in life, quite early on in, in their school education, that the difference between fact and opinion uh, begins whenever the words good or bad enter the conversation. That, that can't be a matter of fact, whether something is good or bad. Um, that's already automatically opinion when you're assigning a moral valence to it. Uh, does that have anything to do with what we're talking about? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's sort of colloquially one, one thinks of realism, uh, especially in political life, as, as a 
contrasted with political idealism. You know, sure, it'd be nice if we lived in a certain kind of polity and uh, the work we did politically was constructive towards the vision of a certain kind of community rather than a kind of harm mitigation or a, a discernment of the least bad of bad options. And the, the realism view, political realism, is about, is, is you know, possibly one step away from political cynicism. Then, of course, there's the vision of, of moral realism as opposed to moral relativism, that uh, one can speak meaningfully of good uh, and of evil. And um, I think what we wanted to do in this piece and in, in choosing that term spiritual realism is to uh, make the case that political realism, which is to say a... Uh, realistic look at how we human beings live together in community and make the decisions towards the end of um of government um has to also be morally and indeed spiritually realist i think the the sort of two two more robust views that i think we're putting forward here b is that um our politicians, as it were, our government, our polity, uh, should be taking a more active role in preserving uh, and supporting initiatives that foster this kind of flourishing in human beings. And uh, additionally, uh, another robust claim that I think that does lie at the, behind this piece is that um, when we talk about good and evil, when we talk about uh, human purpose, we are not merely even talking about like human beings uh, feeling good, like they have found their own personal fulfillment, but rather that there is something real towards which we can aspire. I think rather what we're saying is that um, for a polity to work, for our political life to allow for human flourishing, uh, the path we have to start from is a path that takes seriously um, the notion that we are working together, perhaps with the epistemic humility that at its best uh, liberalism allows to preserve our freedom to investigate this together. Um, we are working out the good. And I think that that is a way of thinking that is a kind of epistemological pathway that is very, very different from, let me say, the, the relativistic pathway that says, all right, you know, we, we want to get people to a position where they can choose choose for themselves uh, what is good. There there really isn't such a thing as the good. Um, that's just some some sort of outmoded fairy tale. One of the ways that these questions of dignity and um, personhood and sort of uh, the the real good as opposed to sort of what makes you feel good. Um, one of the ways that these questions has really bit into the news cycle recently is in the discussion of um, MAID, medically assisted death, or medical assistance in death in Canada in particular, um, where a, a number of disabilities rights organizations have pointed out that uh, the approach to um, human flourishing that this that this practice seems to promote is one where, you know, only people who are at the physical peak of their you know, are, are 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 sort of the best types, kind of get the dig get the the full dignity of um, society telling them that they shouldn't die. You can see the corrosion of the idea of human dignity there in a way that seems really striking to me. Is that something that either of you have given much thought to? Well, of course, uh, I've I've given some significant thought to this question because I've spent uh, more than two decades of my life in partnership with and 
trying to follow the lead of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who for centuries have been um, treated as less than valuable, not just less than valuable, but exterminated, uh, sterilized, institutionalized, incarcerated, not because of anything they've ever done, but because of who they are. So the question of the value of a particular human life has is central people with intellectual disabilities. I was with Frank Stevens, a, a man who has Down syndrome, when he spoke one time at the Capitol. Um, and he, he started his remarks off the cuff, by the way, in front of a group of congressmen and senators, um, uh, kind of got choked up. And was we all thought he had lost his way in terms of what he wanted to say. And he just um, lost his text. And he looked up and he said, I want you to know my life has uh, meaning. Um, and it was not lost on any of us that he had to say that. And so we don't have to look just to the end of life questions. We can look to the entire life cycle to see the way in which the medical systems often prioritize people who have wealth, who have power, who have this, you know, uh, uh, you know, access to to resources and so on. And they deprioritize whether it's in the dispensation of primary care or things like transplants or other kinds of things. Uh, people with intellectual developmental disabilities are always, uh, I'm sorry to say, still uh, treated as second-class people, as people who don't deserve, who don't deserve, don't have the same dignity as others. I mean, I'm not going to underestimate uh, the, the the enormous struggle and adversity of people with uh, chronic um, uh, fatal diseases. But when systems and cultures and political systems start to give broad latitude to people in effect, to end someone else's life, uh, red flags ought to go up for all of us. And caution ought to be enormous um, because the track record of having doctors and even, I dare, I'm sorry to say, family members making decisions for other people about whether their quality of life uh, constitutes um, uh, something worth preserving. Uh, you, someone else starts to make those decisions, uh, beware. Um, the most vulnerable are likely to suffer. I'll just say that I think um, I, I'm with uh, Pope Francis here, that, that I think we do live in a culture of disposability. Um, and I think that that is a, a broader cultural phenomenon than this particular instance. But this particular instance absolutely um, reflects, I think, the way in which... Um, we the idea that to be a certain kind of quote unquote burden to be vulnerable in in certain ways to maybe not even have certain kinds of autonomy uh in a culture where autonomy is that which makes us human where it is the kind of yardstick against our humanity as measured um it is it logically follows that when we uh, enter into those states uh be it be it childhood old age or illness uh, that make us less autonomous. Uh, we are somehow less human, less fully human. I do think that uh, unchecked and unrefined, the tendency to um, see human autonomy or human freedom as the highest, again, good among goods, um, does, produ does produce in us um, a tendency that, if left unchecked, um, does lead us to think that uh, we are less human when we are less autonomous, and when we are less human, we are more disposable. One of the things I loved about your essay is that uh, when we get to the end, you actually put forward some suggestions for how to kind of steer the ship around. 
Yeah, I mean, I think our feeling, uh, my, uh, I think our feeling is that there is an, an emerging, uh, there are emerging trends in the culture that point towards a different future. That whole trend to turn to the to yourself um, might meet with the great religious and spiritual trend of the mystics and the and and all those great teachers throughout history who have invited us to see within ourselves the hunger for the divine. I mean, you can see it in the culture. In the flourishing, you see how much meditation and mindfulness and all these yogic type uh, practices. They're not always. Some of them are narcissistic, so you know, don't jump at, don't scream at me. But many of them are uh, are are trending towards a deep kind of uh, connection to silence as a way of discovering your deepest hunger. So we try to identify in this piece what are the building blocks of a spiritual realism that we're already seeing manifest in the culture uh the the expression of universal dignity the willingness to go to the margins to to include and and not exclude those who are who are at the margins as greg boyle has written and, and practiced so powerfully in his work at homeboy industries in 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 los angeles uh what are the skills of connection and communication that would mark a kind of an empathic listening to others, the capacity to listen deeply uh, for the good in others. These are all patterns that we lay out here as kind of the, if you will, the what, what we've tried to pull from the great spiritual traditions as some of the great practices that if we put in the culture, we could use to navigate questions just like the ones you've brought up about, about healthcare. How would we answer the question of healthcare if we really believed? deeply believed in the dignity of each person. Your focus on kind of like um, personal, you know, what might be called spiritual disciplines or um, personal practices, Tim, seems to me to be um, a way of like saying, you know, the safety that we need from, you know, in talking about this can't be found in external structures um, because we need to be vulnerable to each other. So the safety that we need in order to be able to live in a world um, that is not constrained to, to by liberal individualism has to do with um, kind of individual transformation, not not, you know, individualism, and individualism, but just like each of us needs to become the kind of person who with whom it is safe to pursue the good. Does that sort of ring true? Yes, I think we each need to do it, but we can, Susanna, we, we try to say in the in the piece that we can build institutions that uh, that increase the probability that that vulnerability will be normal, that that expression of dignity will be normal. And I, we point here, yes, we can point to the Thirty Years' War, but for most people, the Thirty Years' War is pretty far in the past. Religious violence is not far in the past, don't get me wrong. But we could also point to the Peace Corps. Uh, we could also point to the Special Olympics movement, which, you know, millions and millions of people come, come out to help uh, people with Down syndrome run a 100-meter race. They're not doing that um, uh, because they're going to get paid for it. They're not doing it necessarily because it'll advance their stature. They're not doing it because it will necessarily increase their uh, you know, employability. They're doing it because they, they're starving for experiences in which the walls break down, You know where they feel free to be themselves, their best selves. And that's true of many institutions and cultural organizations. This is this piece is in a sense an invitation to see the best in us, not just the best in me. Find the best in you. Yes, you must. We we all have that work to do. We all have the inner work to do. But build institutions 
polities, to use uh, Tara's language more than mine, to build a polity that normalizes that search for the best in us, that recognizes and values it as the normative hope of our collective lives, not just of my individual life. Uh, uh, yes, worry about encroachment and enforcement of a oppressive version of someone else's good over my own. Yes, we have to guard against that. But we also have to unleash the hunger we each have uh, to show up for each other, uh, to, to act on our noblest aspirations, and to see what happens when we do that. Think of, think of the heroes, even of our current news cycles, you know. Um, you know, think of Scarlett Lewis, who lost her child at, uh, at Sandy Hook Elementary School at the age of six, who's dedicated her life to the memory of her little boy, Jesse, but also uh, dedicated her life uh, uh, to the memory of Adam Lanza, who took her own child's life. And her program is called Choose Love. She teaches it in schools and prisons elsewhere because she believes that Adam, if someone had chosen to love him more deeply, wouldn't have taken her own child's life. Uh, this is a fabulous example of the human heart freed somehow, I don't know how she does it, to forgive the most painful of crimes, the murder of your own child, freed to forgive that crime in order to act in the goodness and hopefulness of the future of others. Uh, we've seen this in some of the worst violence in our streets, um, uh, where parents say afterwards, calm, peace, forgiveness. We saw this in the Charleston murders, uh, where the people in that congregation did not ask for revenge. In fact, pleaded for forgiveness for the person who took the lives of their brothers and sisters and parents. I mean, it's unimaginable, but that skips the news cycle. You know, it becomes a little rounding error that happens sort of at a memorial service. Instead of an enculturated normative hunger that we have to build the institutions that act in those spaces, we're at a point now where we need to uh, also build uh, new kinds of institutions that normalize our spiritual hunger and bring it to life and uh, new kinds of businesses even, and maybe even a new form of capitalism someday uh, that will uh, uh, get us closer to who we actually want to be. I want to cut in here and uh, bring up bike lanes, which is a joke, which is to say uh, is one thing to have certain kinds of, of political division on uh, Twitter or, or even in the kind of political race uh, that is covered by the news cycle. Uh, it is another thing entirely uh, to look at your neighbors whom you know and live with every day uh, within within whose community you you do the you exist in the book of your life um, and still uh, think of them uh, in the same uh, bombastic terms you might think of your political enemy you've never met. And so I think that one of the important features uh, for spiritual realism is advocating for um, initiatives that um, allow s smaller communities, New York neighborhoods uh, even, uh, communities where you actually live to operate well and together and that foster ways uh, in which we are encouraged to 
uh, move in the physical geographical landscape of that space in a way that gets us to know one another. Ways that um, crossing a certain street or highway is a safe, not just for the, uh, the, 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 the young and the healthy, but for children or the elderly um, who might be endangered. I, I think my own neighborhood of Red Hook is uh, bounded from the rest of New York by the, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, this enormous overpass. And um, physically crossing out of the neighborhood is kind of dangerous. And so I'm always struck by uh, the success of really local institutions, hyper-local institutions, from, from the, the, village, the village pub uh, or the coffee shop to uh, the mutual aid society and the community fridge. Um, I, I do think uh, that we start there. And as Tim said, we build from the bottom up. Just because every time I think about Red Hook, I get irritated at Robert Moses again. Um, <clears throat> as you know, Tara, this is something that just plagues me, um, not least because I like visiting you, but it's a pain in the neck to get there. Um, but I wonder whether, Tim, um, as part of the, the final sort of rallying cry of this piece, you did talk about um, the role of you guys did talk about the role of public servants and the role of leadership as well as, you know, the community grassroots bottom-up aspect of this, um, how should we be thinking about um, what responsibilities our leaders have or, or how can we sort of um, help each other become leaders who can um, promote the, these kinds of um, interactions and this kind of approach to our lives together? Yeah. Well, it's a huge challenge. I mean, we're, we're, in, a, we're in a deep hole. Um, and it's a it's not just a conceptual one it's practical uh tara's point you know people are scared of others scared of saying what they think scared of going to work um, scared of political uh discourse scared of violence um, scared of racism and sexism these kinds of things uh, scared of uh, being i you know uh, called out instead of called in as uh, our, my colleague van jones sometimes says um, so I think we got to start with some very, very, very basic, I would call, um, spiritual values. And that is listening and treating others with respect and dignity. You can't solve problems if you're screaming at each other, if you're, uh, demonizing each other, if you're trying to humiliate people, if you, so I think we all can start with baby steps, which is listening. Um, uh, as we teach in the social emotional learning field, uh, assuming positive intent, uh, of others. It's hard. No, but I mean, it is hard, but it's hard when we're in these political, when we've been inflamed, you know, if you watch the news, you are treated to a, to a, to a toxins. It's all, it's powerful inflammatories really for the soul. So we've got to, uh, we've got, we've got to learn the, the, the quality of heart and mind the disposition, uh, that allows us to listen one another and i know that sounds pretty boring and basic but imagine if that's all we did for the next year or two is try to change the quality of the discourse at the level of decision making in communities and in governments and in cultures and in and in companies and in organizations uh so that we actually treated each other with some degree of dignity i think it would begin to unlock uh both an easing of divisions and divisiveness uh, reducing, as we like to say in the Dignity Index, reducing um, the probability of violence, easing divisions, but then most importantly, beginning to help us solve problems at a deeper level. Well, I think that um, with this piece and with this discussion, the two of you have begun to 
um, promote those kinds of conversations. I'm so grateful for both of your time um, for meeting with us this morning, and I'm so pleased to be able to publish this. Um, it's going to be coming out in the next couple of days, and I look forward to um, to where this goes next. Thank you both so much. This has been wonderful. We're very grateful to you and to Plow for giving us a giving us the chance to share this uh, this point of view, and hopefully uh, invite others to join us in a dialogue about how we can take it to the next level. So thank you. And now we'll be speaking with Hannah Long and Bose Harrington. Hannah grew up in Appalachian, Virginia, where her family has lived for, she says, nigh on 250 years. She now lives in New York City and is another dear friend. While her day job is in publishing, on the side, she has provided cultural commentary and film criticism for The Dispatch, Angeles News, Arc Digital, PJ O'Rourke's American Consequences, the American Cinema Foundation, and Athwart. She tweets at Hannah Grace Long. Bose Harrington is a mystery and middle grade novelist. His essays have appeared in The Guardian, The Atlantic, Lit Hub, and Nerdist. He tweets about books and faith and co-runs the Dickens Chronological Reading Group. He tweets at Sketches by Bose. They're both Plow contributors. Welcome, Hannah and Bose. Thank you guys both for being here. Um, uh, Bose Harrington and Hannah Long, uh, legendary tweeters both. Anyway, um, we are here to talk about uh, Jesus and John Wayne and Jesus and John Wayne, the book, and um, also various Westerns. And we have a lot of feelings and opinions, um, which I think we're about to get into. It might be useful at the beginning to hear from both of, of you, um, kind of your connection to Westerns and John Wayne. Uh, Bose, I think you actually live in Texas. I do, which, but it's, that's not the reason I like Westerns. <laughs> I, uh, for whatever reason, I went through a Western phase in 2015 or 2016, and I was trying to watch all the, the classic Westerns. I think I was trying to get a sense of the, the basics of black and white storytelling. Um, black and white, not as in color, but like moralistically black and white storytelling. And I found that I gravitated towards the type of Westerns that weren't so much black and white Westerns like Shane or The Searchers, or last night I watched um, Ride the High Country. They're kind of morally complex with interesting character dynamics. I I like how the, the genre sort of started to become self-aware and deconstruct itself in the late 50s and early 60s. So, and that's how Hannah and I sort of became friends as we were talking about and deconstructing Westerns. And Hannah, you have a piece in, um on its way to being in our current issue, I believe. Guns in the Afternoon, revisiting a Western fable of decline, inheritance, and hope. Uh, on Ride the High Country. I got into Westerns in the winter of 2021, and that was sparked by a sort of a conversation I'd had with my friend Terry Teachout. I'd been watching a few at the time anyway, and I watched Ride the High Country. I was just really struck by its uh, moral universe that, which is very, um, I mean, Bose talks about it as if, like in, in terms of ambiguity, and there is that. There's a lot, there are a lot of very complicated characters with complicated beliefs, but they all seem to believe the idea that there is something to, something higher than them to adhere to, or at least, or rather, the main character who does believe that turns out to be vindicated in the end. That, that's maybe a better way of putting it. I think everyone else doubts that. 
but the film itself tends to believe that there is something higher, that there is uh, the, the language used and the, the sort of cultural touchstones that, that are touched, brought to bear by the people that do believe in the, that in the high country, essentially, metaphorically speaking, imply that there is a God and that, that there is a, some sense of like an absolute morality that you can adhere to. And I was just really struck by that. There's just a great poignance in the fact that it was made by Sam Peckinpah, who went on to have this uh, cr- sort of tragic life um, of womanizing and alcohol and drugs and just all of this, you know, t- all of this in his personal life, as well as just the fact that he was he's now well known for being the guy who really inv- brought hyperviolence to the fore in a lot of uh, cinema. And so... It, there was just a, a real poignance to the irony of that. It sort of sparked for me an interest in the genre as a whole. So I started watching just Western after Western. It was We, we were all snowed in that winter. It was like 18 inches of snow in New York. And uh, I was stuck in a basement apartment with very little natural light. I'm so glad you're home. out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, it had so much more space than our current place. Anyway, but uh, it was it, like... It was a mental escape from the circumstances, and it was something that I just felt elevated by the, these these stories. Where and to quote Terry Teachout, who had a very very thoughtful um, sort of exegesis of the genre in the Weekly Standard twenty some years ago, uh, there were about choices that were always clear but rarely easy. So that was. That was there. Was, the ambiguity was in in the what it cost you to to make those choices, uh, not in the choices themselves, which I think is an interesting distinction, and which allows you to tell complicated stories in a black and white moral world. And then shortly after you went through your kind of like Western apotheosis, you decided that you needed to inflict this on the entire friend group, and so you've been um, leading us through a curriculum which included watching Ride the High Country two nights ago, in fact, in your That's new right. place, which is not, yes. which has more light. It does have space. more light. The um, John Wayne spiritual exercises. Yeah. <laughs> Something along those lines, yes. Um, and we, yeah, we started sometime, like, I don't know, March of last mm-hmm. year. We started with Stagecoach, mm-hmm. uh, which is the, the beginning of the curriculum. Um, and it, it sort of re- was the first, it's often considered sort of the first important or great Western uh, there were a lot that had been made before that were sort of cheaper or not made by great filmmakers. I think um, Orson Welles watched it 40 times before making Citizen Kane. So it really did have this enormous influence on not just Westerns, but cinema in general. Now, we're we're talking about this in the context of um, a, a recent book by Kristen DeMay that came out called Jesus and John Wayne, which wasn't really about either Jesus or John Wayne in interesting ways. Um, but was about a, a group um, who she doesn't like very much, who are sort of white American evangelicals. I think um, the subtitle kind of captures it, yeah. her take, which is how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. Right. So she's not a fan of this people group. Um, you guys both kind of are white evangelicals, or at least I don't think that you would call yourself an evangelical anymore, um, Bows, but both of you kind of grew up in, in that world. Um, do you guys want to each talk about like a little bit where you're coming from with this? Well, I think one thing I would jump in and say uh, is 
just to kind of give a bit bit of a recap for how Bose and I met is like we're each other's one of each other's like oldest Twitter friends. Uh, I remember meeting him in what was it 2015, I think, and I was about 19 and I was in community college and I didn't have any friends, and uh, in real life anyway. So I was just meeting people on Twitter uh, and pathetically, you know, trying to trying to make friends. So. We, we really became fast friends talking around genre fiction, not westerns, but, um, but murder mysteries, uh, which I, I think Bose would uh, be mad if I didn't manage to <laughs> work, work both murder mysteries and Dickens into this conversation in some way. So uh, another part of it, though, was that we uh, bonded over talking about our evangelical backgrounds. Um, I mean, as... Uh, as you said, I'm, I'm really the only white evangelical on the call in that, like, I'm both white and evangelical. Um, and uh, But we, we did have a similar background in that uh, we had grown up in these smaller towns in, in, in the South, just, just some, of the, some of the experiences we'd had. And I remember uh, being really struck by the fact that Bose, and I, I don't know how much he'll want to share about that, maybe he can do a little bit of a recap, had been through some very, very bad experiences with evangelicalism and that he still had faith through it um and that was just a, something i was really struck by and impressed by and i and a little bit mystified by like I, I wasn't sure if i would have come come through some of those things with the same faith and uh i pitched this question to Bose last night because i was curious what his what his like response to that would be so i'll i'll pitch it over to him but i it was just from the earliest moments of our friendship, kind of the the tension between some of the things we'd experienced and our faith was was really a theme in it. Yeah, I'm not sure how much it would be appropriate to get into my whole backstory, which you can read in various places on, online. But I was raised Southern Baptist, but like the really, really strict kind of fire and brimstone Southern Baptist, uh, you know, the world is going to end tomorrow kind of thing. And uh, then in college, I joined uh, a Pentecostal prayer group with three or four friends. And we ended up, um, um, after we left college, we stayed together and kind of became a, a, an end times cult. And it got really um, um, violent, frankly. Um, I, I was severely punished by the, the group leader in horrifying ways, and my best friend, Bethany, um, took her own life after shortly after marrying the cult leader. And so there, there's been quite a bit of religious trauma that I had to work through. And when I met Hannah, I was struggling with all these questions like, um, what if what if the universe just ends? What if there's no soul, et cetera, et cetera, which I've slowly, in the last seven years, I, I've gotten more of a, a faith and a hope and a perspective, but I was really struggling in 2015 and Hannah helped me work through a lot of that. Wow, so thanks, Bose. And, you know, I think that kind of touches on some of the issues that we do want to talk about. Maybe it would help to kind of first talk about Westerns and the ideals that are put forward in them, because there is a kind of old-fashioned integrity, I think is the word you used in your piece, Hannah. Um, what What is that? Um, 
there's so much talk of you know searching for a good masculinity a non-toxic masculinity uh when these movies were made that was a much less conflicted um set of questions it seems um and yet the answers given in those movies is not as caricatured as some might think the classic era of westerns which i tend to put between 1939 and 1962 ending with ride the high country and the man who shot liberty valance was a lot more varied in its in its perspective on masculinity and right and wrong than you might expect uh there was as early as uh you know the 1940s john ford was sort of deconstructing american imperialism in the film ford apache and you had films like The Oxbow Incident, which I cannot remember what year it was, but it was also quite early. It was Henry Fonda, and it was about a lynching. I mean, it was a very cynical view of American society and of uh, society's tendency to punish those that uh, it wants to scapegoat. And uh, so there are all of those ideas throughout there. I think that there's what makes it distinct from... Uh, the more morally gray world of the 1960s and 70s westerns and further on it is again just kind of that assumption that there is some sort of code um, that doesn't necessarily mean a religious code but that there's there's some sort of assumption and I think this is partly like a genre assumption that that you know cowboys behave in a certain way uh, that's not really how it was in the old west I think um, it's this is very much myth trying to teach us something um, but it's it's using this framework to to allow the characters to operate within a, a world of certain expected behaviors uh, that you can't shoot a guy in the back that that and you you'll see it over and over again in in the westerns where some you know some it's John Wayne versus some guy and and Wayne ducks out from behind a tree but then he yells the guy's name to make sure he turns around before he shoots him that's you know it's a little bit of a, a <laughs> It's maybe not entirely fair, to be honest, as saying as someone who has shot a handgun. I don't think that's actually going to give you too much of a of an advantage. But there there were certain rules of fair play that are assumed in, in these Westerns. Um, and in most cases, there was an assumption that civilization is to be preferred to wilderness or, or lack of order. Um, but then in others... What is, you know, the civilization itself can often be very corrupt. High noon uh, is a very cynical view of, of a, a civilization which has, which has no gratitude for the people that protect it, um, which I think is more of a conservative takeaway than uh, John Wayne did. I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me in just sort of rereading the Dumais book, which I've read, I would say, 90% of at this point, um, <clears throat> she has this line on screen, good triumphed over evil, and the lines between the two were clearly drawn. Um, she doesn't like this for various reasons and in, in various ways. It's a, and I was just sort of struck by the way that that's kind of true, but it's also like she makes it sound as though these are cartoon movies, like the, the, there's something simple about them. There is, as you say, there's a moral realism to the universe, and it has to do with, and you have to sort of make choices that are in accord with that moral realism, but those choices definitely are not simple choices, and they're not, um, they're, they're not easy choices, and they're not choices that advantage you 
always. They're often the point is that they disadvantage you, that, that you're giving up something. Um, you know, sometimes you're giving up the, the benefits of the civilization that you helped preserve. Um, and it just one of the strangest things about the book, which maybe we'll turn to talking about now, is that she, I don't it doesn't really strike me that she's seen very many of these movies. Um, I can't recall if she really kind of goes into talking about any of the kind of the way that Westerns work or any of the plots of any of the specific movies other than sort of um, kind of the kind of things that you could get from um, like a Wikipedia summary or something like that, or if, if that. Um, that was that my impression was, as well. Yeah. I, yeah. It, it, that was the, that was why the, the book is so, um, was surprising to me because it's, you know, it's called Jesus and John Wayne and it's really not about either Jesus or John Wayne as a, as an actor slash movie maker. Um, it's more about like John Wayne as a kind of concept. Um, but that concept doesn't really match very well with the John Wayne who, you know, with kind of Westerns even as a, as a genre or with John before, Wayne. Yeah, we, yeah, before we move on, I, I appreciate sure. the point you make about her dislike of a moral universe where you just have two choices and the good guys always win. Like, I think that there's um, a modern sort of critical assumption that it exists in a lot of, it's, it's an unexamined assumption by a lot of critics that something is better if it's more complex um, or if there are lots of choices and none of them obvious. Um, that you can't tell a, an adult story in which there, by by some rule of the genre, the good guys always win. Um, that, that that there needs to be some level of uncertainty there. Or and I don't think that any of those assumptions are defensible if you think about them. Uh, I think that they might be. At least they're not defensible from my ideological point of view. I think that the, you can absolutely tell interesting stories in which uh, the the genre is a little bit more. Uh, uh, like set in it in its goals, uh, and the Hayes Code was a big part of this. Was that it, it really did um, kind of limit what you could and couldn't do, but that meant what often like because you had those expectations, you, people were curious about what you would do in order to meet them because you could do a lot of interesting things in between those points. Like if good has to win, how do you make it really interesting that good will win? So I think that that's just something that is not thought through enough by people who are thinking about storytelling in general. Um, I mean, that seems to have its analog in so many art forms, right? Like, how are you going to make this sonata form work out, right? How are you going to make the three unities in French theater, you know, um, interesting? Uh, how are you going to make, you know, any, any type of uh, ghost story uh, different than the last ghost story? I realize this is probably tangential to Christian Dumais's main point, but I almost wish that one could go over to her house and sit down with her for a weekend and just marathon all the classic Westerns just to Seriously? give her a real feel for the genre. But yeah. also I was thinking, um, not not to be the, the, the mystery novelist person, but um, I would compare the 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 classic westerns of the the 40s and 50s to the the golden age of british detective fiction in um britain in the 40s and 50s that they're they're very similar in the sense that i think wh auden said you have a detective who's kind of the agent of god's justice and in america you have these 
Western movies in which there is uh, the the cowboy who is the agent of God's justice who brings order to the frontier in the same way that the detective brings order out of the chaos of a murder. And uh, it, it's, um, it, it's interesting how Britain kind of uh, took the, 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 the hunger for that and channeled it into the detective form. And America took the hunger for that and channeled it into the, the Western form. And then um, America's take on the detective story was 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 really different from the um, British take in that you had the noir, which was kind of a response to the Western films of the 40s and 50s. It was um, what what Hannah was just talking about was morally murky, more ambiguous, and so you you had a population that. Uh, was sort of split between those who enjoyed more black and white storytelling and then you had your westerns and those who uh, enjoyed um, more complex stories with no resolution such as the the film noirs like the big sleep um, etc and uh, um, personally i i enjoy both of them i enjoy the the classic westerns and the the um the, the mysteries but uh, um, I think there's something to be said for the Western as uh, um, people people craving like something similar to religion, like a religious tradition, a, a wanting to see a priestly character, in this case, the cowboy riding wrongs and uh, um, bringing vengeance to evildoers as God does. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. But I do also want to say that I think even in the noirs, um, there is, so my dad is obsessed with this Raymond Chandler essay called The Simple Art of Murder, which he claims is the greatest work of moral philosophy of the 20th century. Um, <clears throat> there's- Small claim. Yeah, this is a quote from um, the, the introduction. Down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. The detective must be a complete man and a common man and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor. And it's actually, I mean, this is, that actually has, has always struck me as pointing towards more similarities between the noir and the, and the Western genre. And they are both obviously also take, takeoffs on um, stories of chivalry. And one of the questions that I kept wanting to ask Dumay while I was reading, you know, this book is like, are there any good versions of this? Like, do you see nothing good about the idea of a man of honor? Like, is there is that just a disgusting idea to you? Um, and if it is, that just seems very sad to me, um, not least because that kind of cuts you off from a lot of not just Westerns, but most of the many of the main genres of literature and and film and and uh, you know and, and poetry um f you know from before 1965 or so when everyone did start to sort of think of the idea of the man of honor as something suspect or vicious well one other genre that we haven't mentioned but we can just throw in there because it's also a bit the same time period is is fantasy so tolkien uh c.s lewis's narnia these are also morally non-complex st 
stories in terms of where they land up? I mean, there's clear good and there's clear evil, uh, which is why so many people love them, right? They're very comforting. And, and, uh, and you similarly have this attempt then in more recent fantasy literature to complexify things. Um, I, again, I couldn't agree with, more with Hannah, this unexamined assumption that greater complexity means greater sophistication. Well, so again, to just kind of return to Terry Teachout, because he he had a theory of both westerns and noir. Uh, I haven't gotten into watching noir as much, but he he also had a very specific noir definition. Uh, did an excellent series of podcasts, sort of almost a class on this with uh, Tito's Teixeira, and uh, he defined them as being about a man who had a moral choice and usually made the wrong choice at the beginning of the plot, and that was where everything went wrong, like in Double Indemnity when Fred McMurray decides he wants to trust Barbara Stanwyck, who is so obviously untrustworthy. But there is, I think, uh, and people tend to see them as complex because they, do, they usually don't have happy endings, but that I don't think uh, necessarily means that they're, that they're not existing in a world with fairly clear moral choices. It's just people are making the wrong ones. Um, I wonder, though, since getting back to Kristen DeMay, um, the book's called Jesus and John Wayne, but I think actually what the book is about is more what the subtitle is about, uh, which is white evangelicals and specifically white evangelical Christian males. Yeah. It, it's a very, um, it's interesting because it's part of this genre of kind of books about, of, about this group that a bunch of people came out with that um, Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead came out with about four each. That's an exaggeration. But um, we made fun of their Christian nationalism <laughs> criteria in a previous episode. We we did, um, but it is it's a very bizarre genre this this critique of Christian of white Christian nationalism genre because it um, it's sort of sociological, but it's as though you were like a sociologist and you were writing this um, book about a tribe and you were just like, this is the worst tribe in the world. This people group sucks they're bad at their own religion which is dumb and they have bad taste and their gender roles and beliefs about sexuality are stupid and they are personally all corrupt and unintelligent they're a bad influence in the world and especially in the country where we're, they're one of the major people groups and i'm going to write this kind of objective sociological book about them it's very weird it's like a it's it's just it's a phenomenally interesting i don't know publishing tendency it's interesting. It's, I mean, it's tribalism, uh, but it's, and I say this as someone who is not unsympathetic to a critique of the blind spots of white conservative evangelicalism. I've seen them myself and I grew up around them. And uh, I may tell a story about that in a little bit, but that it, it's so determined that, that white evangelicals fall on the right side of history and are on the wrong side of history and everything that it covers that it just feels like such a, a partisan and narrow view of history as a whole that I just like, I really have a hard time reading through it and thinking, I trust this as a view of history. Uh, it, it It's so scornful of this group that it's trying to, un it doesn't seem like it's interested in understanding. I mean, I, I would hope that if I were examining subgroups of which I was not a part, and I, I attempt that on occasion, that I was able to find something that I liked about them and convey that. Because I think that you're not really going to be able to understand anything if you can't understand what's likable about it at all. Um, be that thing John Wayne or uh, just 
you know, whatever ideology I don't like at the time, you know, that it's, if you can't understand that facet of it, if you can't understand why it would be appealing to anyone, um, then I don't think you're going to be able to explain it to anyone. It's ironic that a book that critiques uh, stark moral black and whites actually just assumes pretty stark moral black and whites. <laughs> I was thinking about that. Obviously, I similarly, there, there are aspects, there are, I guess, tendencies, which some people in the sort of white evangelical world have exhibited, you know, as there are people in every world um, that are terrifying and awful. And because human beings can exhibit terrifying and awful tendencies and bad and be bad versions of themselves. But I guess the thing that um, that baffles me and that actually kind of seems to relate to a lot of themes in Westerns, actually, is is there a good version of yourself? I think a lot of this does come back to, I mean, to the, the fact that all of this was written in the wake of Trumpism. And so Trumpism as a thing and as an experience tended to break people's ability to look back at, at history with anything without sort of reverse engineering that into every other story. Um, you know, making every other conflict in history, finding the Trump in that story. And uh, that's, uh, uh, this allows you from seeing fine distinctions. I mean, for instance, she, using symbols here, she she sees John Wayne as the exact same sort of figure in evangelicalism, which is, of course, the, the fantasy of the book, um, which is a very engaging one. It's a very engaging explanatory fantasy that evangelicals have always fallen for uh, figures that are not Christian and that uh, use the, the language and the logic of paganism and of uh, vengeful power-seeking, and they try and baptize that, that she's essentially saying that the, the things that they did with Trump, which, and I, I'm pretty sympathetic to that description of what happened in 2016 and in the next few years. I'm Not that I uh, don't understand why people may have voted for the man, et cetera, but uh, I, I felt very at sea as a young evangelical in the South when a lot of the people that had told me things, you know, sort of sort of the religious right mantra about character mattering in politics, suddenly that didn't seem to matter at all when you had this more utilitarian goal to achieve. And I felt really bruised by it. I mean, I was just like, I felt like I was completely at sea all of a sudden. I was, I don't know, I was like 21 in 2016. And during the week, I would be at this very liberal liberal arts college, and you know, I had a lot, I love a lot of people there, but I was extremely in a minority as a conservative and a vocal conservative in class. I've never not been vocal; uh, it's my curse. But uh, so I would, you know, be fighting fighting everybody in class because I thought I had to own everyone. And then on the weekends, I would come home and see, you know, friends and family who were much more right wing and who thought I was a fake and a phony because I didn't like Trump and that, you know, I wasn't really pro-life and I wasn't really this or that. And I just I was I felt like I hadn't moved and everybody else had moved. And it was this really weird, like, just sense of betrayal and of hypocrisy. And uh, I I just I, I really was was bruised by it, I think. And so I'm, I'm very sympathetic to her tackling that phenomenon, which I think is what she's trying to do. I think she she uh, she identifies a, a certain idol-making tendency on the right, and that that tendency needs to be identified. Um, but I think that it's also possible that we, we make 
we all make our idols. And if we're not able to see our own, it's, it's going to be hard to, to critique others. I mean, there is a real thing that she's responding to. Um, there is militaristic forms of Christian-branded nationalism that have been pretty influential in this country. And if you remember back to the beginning of, say, the Iraq War, we're just everywhere, right? Um, newly added college at that time. Um, that was the air that people breathed even in New York State, right? Um, that's not so long ago as, as distant as that may seem a cultural memory right now. Um, so are there distortions in particularly white Christian Christianity in the United States? Well, if we look at our 200 years of history, absolutely so. I mean, the, you know, the theological justifications for slavery, for manifest destiny, for native dispossession, et cetera, et cetera. You know, like, like to bring it to the Jesus point, like this is not the Jesus of the four gospels. Bose, I'd be curious what you think, because uh, you, you grew up probably in something a lot closer to the kind of culture that Dumais is, is critiquing here than yeah, um, I like think I it goes back to what Hannah was saying earlier about contextualizing the book within its historical context. The time it was written, um, 81 million evangelicals had voted for for the Republican candidate. And uh, this was kind of a shattering moment for a lot of young people who had grown up in the evangelical church because they were looking at their elders who had told them, don't vote for um, anyone who does has sexual misconduct and lies to you don't vote for that person don't vote for a person of bad moral character and but then they went and voted for this person who was the embodiment of the seven deadly sins and so it was four or five years of young evangelicals looking at themselves and going where did this movement go wrong these values that i was raised in how how can i inculcate them authentically i'm not seeing them inculcated authentically in my church and so you see this this deconstruction this re-examining the roots of the faith to to, to kind of get at the problems in the faith and i think that's what Kristen dumay is doing here i noticed that Kristen uh dumay pointed out the uh that evangelicals often favor the the, you know the tougher side of Jesus, the the table flipping Jesus, and the uh, and ignore the the more peaceful side of him. But of course, the the thing I think we have to look at there is that she did she didn't try and balance those things because she she seemed seemed to imply without getting further into it that we should only prefer the peace loving Jesus. And I think that the, the paradox of the gospel and the difficulty of it is that that there are both of those elements in there. Is that that he's a God of justice and of mercy. Uh, and the cross is the resolution of those things, but it doesn't mean it's it's easy for us to, to reconcile both of those things all the time. And uh, so figuring out what where is the, what is the use of force and how, how is force and justice, you know, how, how do those things interact in anything like righteousness? Is there a righteous way to think about those things? I think that the classic Westerns are a very interesting uh, setting in which to examine those questions. They're, they're very concerned with, with how violence affects us, with what the cost of justice is, because, I mean, there has to be some sort of form of justice or some someone uh, creating justice in a society is, is usually the, the, uh, 
the unacknowledged assumptions in most of these westerns. But what does that do to us, and what costs does it does it result in? I mean, you you end up with guys like Ethan Edwards who are condemned to be outside of society because of the the, the they've been wielding the sword. I mean, essentially, sort of like King David, who is not allowed to build the temple because his hands have are, are hands of blood, you know. And so I think that these are very interesting questions that are examined with great thoughtfulness within the classic Western, at least the better versions of them, that uh, that someone who is concerned about these issues and who is concerned about a lot of those themes would, it's worth checking them out. I think that a, a, a what, and here here's going to be my uh, slightly trolly take, is that the book should have been called Jesus and Clint Eastwood because uh, <laughs> Sergio Leone's Westerns are much, much less conflicted about uh, killing people because it makes you look like a badass. Um, it's it's way more focused on the aesthetic coolness of the Western hero as opposed to his moral virtue or his his heroic sacrifices. Um, and not not completely. There there's still some of that in there, but uh, but there's a in a lot of ways they're more morally simple because they uh, they're so focused on just an aesthetic version of something there's no sense of like what what is what is violence doing to the man with no name i don't know i mean he looks pretty cool when he's doing it let's get a poster of him and you know i was thinking about film analysis and film criticism and uh looking at what it is and instead of assuming that we know what it is because of the sort of cultural assumptions about it there's a lot of bad film writing about classic film uh, in, in general, just like a lot of assumptions that don't actually track with when you look at it. I mean, I said earlier that there's a, usually an assumption that the black hat, white hat world ended in like the, the, the 60s, and then suddenly we entered this world of uh, artistically interesting films as opposed to whatever happened before, which is, if you watch anything from before that, you could see that that's a, a gross simplification. Um, and I think that, like I said, there's a lot of bad film writing about classic film, and John Wayne's politics make him a particular target for that sloppiness and assumption and cherry picking, and uh, Dumay does some of that. I don't think she's alone in that. Um, I was a little bit disappointed since he's in the name of the book that she hadn't kind of seen through some of it, but it's really hard when you you have not been trained to think critically about classic film uh, to see through some of the, the general cultural assumptions. It, I think that a lot of people just see it as settled opinion about it, that you can just sort of take all of these things as, as truisms. I, I certainly did when I st first started watching them, and some people kind of had to correct me. Well, no, that's not actually the way it was. You haven't actually seen any of these. You just kind of have picked up on stuff from cultural osmosis. And um, so it's easy to reduce everything to just symbols, which she does. It, she sort of turns John Wayne into this evangelical icon, uh, which really the symbol of the American conservative 1950s. Yeah, yeah, uh, which reduces him in a lot of ways. Uh, he he was, he, I mean, for one thing, he was a lot bigger than evangelicals. He was the biggest film star in the country for like three three years or so. Uh, the biggest box office star. He was just ubiquitous. Every, everybody would have known John Wayne well before he became a conservative icon, which he, he started becoming more outspoken as time went on, uh, which we all regret to, <laughs> to some extent. Um, but it, there was a lot more to him than just, just whatever uh, has filtered down into um, the Americana, like, 
cheap posters you see at, at gas stations. Uh, he was he was an artist uh, that had a, a life outside of that character. And partly, I, th I think that you can't really say anything intelligent about him unless you acknowledge that uh, John Wayne was an invented character, and it was he was invented by someone else, and that that someone else was Duke Morrison, which was John Wayne's real name, uh, more or less. It's, his real name was Mary and Michael Morrison, but he went by Duke, and. Duke Morrison and John Wayne were not the same people as each other, and that goes both ways, is that they were both better and worse than each other in interesting ways, um, and, you know, Duke was probably more of a right-wing firebrand than John Wayne for the most part. John Wayne in the films was a more nuanced character. He was often painted by directors who uh, leaned more left-wing than the so it's it's a much more complicated thing uh, to actually watch his films because I the first film that he, he made that really sort of shot him to the prom prominence was, uh, well, besides The Big Trail, which didn't do well, was uh, Stagecoach. And he plays this astonishingly sweet and boyish figure, almost like, you know, a Christ-like guy who uh, is protecting this, this young woman on a, a stagecoach ride when everyone else is judging her. I mean, there's just a real sweetness and heroism to him. and. I wonder, I, that's the one I think I would show Dumais if I wanted to kind of like rattle her idea of what he, he could be a little bit. Um, and I mean, because the way she describes his films, she talks about, and I was pretty salty in the group chat about this last night, um, the first two of his films that she talks about, she gets completely wrong. I mean, so wrong that I'm like, I don't understand what movie you're watching. She. She talks about his breakout moment in 48, which is, it's, I'd say that's an accurate statement. And he, he, he starred in two Westerns that year, Red River, in which he played the role of a cattle rancher who, whose love interest was slaughtered by Indians. So that's certainly a way to summarize Red River, but it, uh, it doesn't really describe this sort of horrifying mutiny on the bounty performance where Wayne becomes this dark and controlling and dominating and, and uh, figure who is it, like, it's sort of an early version of the role he plays in The Searchers where you're, you're horrified by him. And it, there's a real moral complexity and it's a deconstruction of his image uh, that he was very, very intentional about. Um, and it's a very interesting and complicated moral film because of that. It was supposedly the one that John Ford watched and, and said, uh, uh, gosh, the big son of a bitch never told me he could act. Uh, and so he decided he needed to start casting him in big things. Um, but then the other thing he made that year was Fort Apache, which was also, it was a John Ford film. I guess it was the one where he decided he could make the big SOB act. And uh, he ended up... Um, it, she describes it as he played a Civil War captain who went on to subdue the Apache in the Western Frontier, which is also certainly a way of describing this film. It's just that it ignores the fact that he's the character who is defending the Apache uh, and who reluctantly ends up sort of fighting against them under the commands of his racist superior, Henry Fonda. And, uh, that, but he's throughout the, the defender of, of the Apache who wants them to be treated with honor and respect, and who only very reluctantly eulogizes Fonda at the end with, with these clear mixed feelings on his face. Um, so it's, I mean, if you're gonna get the, just the basic facts of those films wrong, I don't think you can really understand what, what the, the character of Wayne meant across his film career, across all of that. So anyway, that, it's, 
I think there's something much more interesting to be said if you really do look at what he was and what he did. Because um, you had, on the one hand, you, you had very diverse reactions to him even in the 70s, like Pauline Kael calling him so archaic it's funny in the 70s. But then on the other hand, you had Joan Didion who wrote, uh, and I'll, I'll leave you with this quote, as this is the rest of like the end of my notes, but I thought this was too much good, too good not to quote, which is, when John Wayne rode through my childhood, and perhaps through yours, he determined forever the shape of certain of our dreams. In a world we understood early to be characterized by venality and doubt and paralyzing ambiguities, he suggested another world, one which may or may not have existed ever, but in any case existed no more. Which I think really gets at the, the mythic meaning of a character that, that is just not, not at all uh, evident in Dumais analysis of him, and which is important to, to consider despite his, his numerous personal failings and, and the wicked things that he had said at, at different points, that it's a much more interesting story to engage with that because I think you're missing something if you don't. I mean, there are there's that line in the Dumais book where she says, in films like The Searchers, Wayne portrays unapologetically racist characters. And yes, that's why he's the essentially the villain. Like, like this is... It's a terrifying character, and you're meant to be terrified. And seeing that kind of um, dark animus, that's the point of the movie. And, and it just, I, I, I found that very confusing. I, yeah, I see quite a few people react to The Searchers that way. I think, I think I might have reacted to it that way the first time I saw it, partly because... You have so such low expectations of films from that period that a lot of the times you don't realize, wait a minute, this is trying to tell me something without handing it to me on a plate? What? How could that be? Uh, but they were much more sophisticated than we give them credit for. I, I do want to go back to one comment you made, Hannah, and this is, uh, you know, involved too in, in Tolkien, right? Um, so even as a pacifist, I, I love Tolkien. I love these movies um and i'm reminded of one thing this is going back to our discussion too about you know where's the jesus in it of you know what's sometimes called a kind of red letter christian uh, reaction to uh, 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 christian idolatry uh, american christian idolatry which can go so far the other way um that and it's dislike of militarism, of bad masculinity, of bad forms, of all the things that um, are implicitly praised, whether in Westerns or in Tolkien or uh, we're talking about murder mysteries, um, kind of ends up chucking out a good piece of the faith, too. Um, so you'll find a pretty strong strain, for instance, in some modern um, pacifist Christian thought that actually takes a super dim view of the Old Testament, and specifically of King David. Almost, um, he's the original war, war criminal. So there's a way that in the name of pursuing a kind of red-letter Christian reaction to bad forms of some of the things we've talked about, you end up eating your own faith alive, because, of course, you know, King David's not an unimportant figure, uh, the ancestor of Jesus himself. Uh and so I, I guess that's what I kind of came away with from this thing is there's a strange analogy uh, between like the super strong critique of 
uh, of the morality of the Westerns, perhaps to uh, people's pretty uh, strong discomfort with the first two thirds of the Bible. It's interesting you make that connection because it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that the, the fact that Old Test the Old Testament and Westerns have a lot of crossover. And this is not a an observation that's original to me. A lot of people have noted that uh, these are essentially stories that feel like they're set in the book of Judges, where uh, every man does what is right in his own eyes because there is no human justice to to wield the sword, essentially, to, to be the sheriff. There is this sort of a limbo space between a civilized lived city and you know the anarchy of the, the frontier um, and again I, to, to emphasize this is not necessarily a historical view of what actually happened in the American frontier but it's a way of talking about these issues and uh, people have noted from both directions I, there was some theologian I, I have to remember who it, who it was who was talking about the book of Judges and he said you know this is kind of like the old west and then Walter Hill, uh, who is, um, he's a director of Westerns, and uh, he recently made Dead for a Dollar this year, actually. And he was saying that when he, whenever he wants to make a Western, that he just, just picks up an Old Testament story and starts there. Uh, and he's not a Christian. He grew up religious, but he, he was saying that it's, all of those themes are in there. Uh, Vince Gilligan has said pretty much the same thing, and he also grew up uh, Christian in Virginia, um, represent uh, Virginia Christians. But uh, I think that everyone who kind of understands that those those ideas in that space recognizes that there's a real real similarity. There's a real um, between the genre, at least of, of parts of the Old Testament and, and of classic westerns, where uh, I guess the, the question then is like, is there, are there many classic Westerns that move beyond the Old Testament to the New? Because uh, in a lot of these cases, there's sort of a, a lack of that sense of grace and, and sacrificial nature. I think Ride the High Country, surprisingly enough, is one of them. Um, because, in, uh, and it's surprising because of who Sam Peckinpah was. But, but I think that there's a real sense of uh, sacrificial honor and uh, of, of the, the sort of ideal of a hero who loses everything, um, that he, he is not lauded by the world at the end of the, the story, and yet there's no sense of sadness about that. It's a sense of this is, that he has triumphed, not because he has ended up with a lot of gold, in fact, he ends up with no gold, um, or because he has ended up living happily and, and into his old age, he doesn't live, um, you know, that, but that, that there's nothing sad about this, which is a, quite a countercultural assumption. I don't think that many modern Westerns would make it anymore either. Uh, the, I'm, I guess, uh, dancing around a little bit the, the specifics of the ending of it, but the final shot of the film is an astonishing one. It was one of the great shots in, in movies, and it is a shot of a man falling out of the shot. It, it, it sort of topples like he's, a, like he's a dinosaur or a mountain falling over. And yet behind him, there's left the, the high country, the, the values, the, 
the, the hills to which, to which my eyes go. And throughout all these stories, it's, in John Ford especially, in Monument Valley, these, these mountains represent the eternal things, the values that, that get, don't go away. You could have turned your camera the other way. You could have turned it to the dirt that he's lying in. And yet Sam Peckinpah didn't do that. I mean, one of the things that, one of the ways to sort of think about it is like, if you look at the, the trajectory of what these stories are telling, or the stories that these are telling, they're stories about, you know, someone like King David who can't build the temple because his hands have shed blood, or like Moses who can't enter into the promised land. Um, and then there's stories about people like Jamie Stewart's character in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, who are essentially, that's Solomon. He's like, he, he's the judge. He's, you know, he's the, the senator. He's, he's bringing full civilization and kind of the full promise the, to fruition of this civilizing process. But there is this kind of like, what's left, what's, what's left out? Um, what's, what was the cost? And that kind of like, um, that is a kind of question, like, you know, what is, is civilization worth it? Like, is there anything beyond mere civilization? Like, that's a kind of, that's a, a question that points towards the New Testament in a way. And I'm not sure, like, it, it yeah, I mean, I, I think that that shot does kind of, does get back there because if if there's one thing that we kind of can feel from these movies is that whatever it is that is beyond the good of mere civilization, it has to do with the values that these men have been wrestling with the whole time, sometimes unsuccessfully, as David did. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure there is a real strong New Testament-themed Western that I can think of. Hannah was asking about that, and I, I would argue that the Oxbow incident from 1943 starring Henry Fonda, which she mentioned earlier, is a bit of a passion narrative, because, um, not to spoil it if you haven't seen it, but there is um, a, a series of lynchings, and it is revealed that the lynchings were done unjustly and that the men were murdered without cause. Um, so it, it almost seems to be um, following the trajectory of the New Testament story and making these men who were killed into Christ-like figures. And they do, ha they do end up with a voice beyond death, too. These are stories about the soul and the good thereof and whether or not it's saved. And so that there's a sense in which uh, the characters have to strive for eternal good as opposed to uh, temporal good. And so you, if, if there is a sense in which, in which there is a life beyond death, then that endorses whatever sacrifices they are making, and it makes them not futile. Um, and there, that's a very strong assumption throughout most of these Westerns, that, that it's, there are things that it's worth risking your life for, that uh, this is not all there is, that there is something beyond this. Uh, and that assumption itself just leads us to a lot of assumptions about life and about God and about the way the universe is that a, a, a are, are not very common in films now that are much more about winning, are much more about having something. And Roger Ebert pointed this out, was that, that, that modern films 
action films tend to be about winning and achieving as opposed to uh, what, you know, the, the tension between losing the world versus ga- gaining your soul. And in all of these older films, there's always a, a sense that the soul is a thing, that eternity is a thing, and that, that there is life beyond death, and that that really matters to how you act in the world. So that's, uh, I, I, I believe that's called the, the pedagogic value of the law, pointing us to the gospel. Um, thank you so much, both of you. And this podcast will hopefully be a spur to our listeners to definitely check out Hannah's piece on Ride the High Country. Also, uh, Bose has re- recently written us a great review um, as well, and we'll drop that in the podcast notes. And Hannah, whenever you get around to it, uh, maybe you could share you know, the curriculum, the classic Western curriculum, uh, and we could you know, share that with our listeners as well. Absolutely. Will do. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine. Or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Try that again. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, we'll be speaking with Potter Edmund Waldstein about his family, the generations of a monastery, and ethno-nationalism, and with Matthew Lee Anderson about in vitro fertilization.